Hello, and welcome to the Calvary Chapel Southeast Podcast. Thanks for joining us for our study through the book of 2 Corinthians. This letter was written by the Apostle Paul to the church in Corinth. In it, Paul gets very personal about his own shortcomings, and he comforts the believers in Corinth. But he also teaches us that by embracing our own weakness, we are able to experience God's strength. Grab your Bibles, and let's jump in. If you have your Bibles, would you open them to 2 Corinthians chapter 3? Wanted to greet those watching online with us as well. Good morning to you. Glad that you found the live stream. But uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 3, when you found it, would you go ahead and stand with me? Sorry, I got to time this better. Like, we just sat down. <clears throat> stand with me just for the reading of God's word. We're going we're gonna to cover the whole chapter to this morning. Look at us. 18 verses. Beginning in verse 1, are we beginning to commend ourselves again? Or do you need, as some, letters of commendation to you or from you? You are our letter, written in our hearts, known and read by all men, being manifest that you are a letter of Christ, cared for by us, written not with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. Such confidence we have through Christ toward God, not that we are adequate in ourselves to consider anything as coming from ourselves, but our adequacy is from God, who also made us adequate as servants of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. But if the ministry of death in letters engraved on stones came with glory so that the sons of Israel could not look intently at the face of Moses because of the glory of his face was fading as it was, how will the ministry of the Spirit fail to be even more with glory? For if the ministry of condemnation has glory, much more does the ministry of righteousness abound in glory." For indeed, what had glory, in this case has no glory because of the glory that surpasses it. For if that which fades away was with glory, much more that which remains is in glory. Verse 12, therefore, having such a hope, we use great boldness in our speech and are not like Moses who used to put a veil over his face so that the sons of Israel would not look intently at the end of what was fading away. But their minds were hardened, for until this very day, at the reading of the Old Covenant, the same veil remains unlifted because it is removed in Christ. But to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their heart. But whenever a person turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty, but we all, with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as from the Lord the Spirit. You may be seated. <clears throat> as we've been going through 2 Corinthians... We have been talking a lot about this theme of the book, embracing weakness as a way of experiencing God's strength. And as we talk about embracing weakness, I know, maybe, and maybe you're one, that you can receive this maybe the wrong way, as if embracing weakness might imply like embracing sin. And that's not what it means, okay? I want you to know that. Or it could imply that we don't have to try, 
And that's not what it means either. Or it might imply that it's okay not to be strong. And again, that's not what it means. But again, some of you, you might hear this idea, and you're like, okay, he keeps saying this idea of just of embracing weakness. And you might think, okay, does that just, is he saying that we don't need to change in our lives? Because that's kind of what we see in our culture, right? We, don't, we just need to accept who we are, accept all of our, our weaknesses, and just kind of, we get coddled there, that we just embrace who we are now, and that God's cool with us staying there. Listen, that too is also not the case. And in our passage this morning, Paul shows us that embracing weakness doesn't lead to a passive indifference, but rather it leads to life transformation. And we all long for transformation, right? Like we all want to change, right? We don't want to stay in the same place. We want to continue to grow and learn and and heal and change. And in our search of transformation, right, that's the journey that we're on, our culture What does our culture look to? Our culture looks to psychology or science and ultimately to self, right? Self-transformation. We we like to call it self-help, right? I'm sure you've heard of that before, self-help. There's a whole genre of books over at the the bookstore for self-help. Now, if you don't take my word for it, the other day I looked at ChatGPT. Have you done this before? If you don't know what ChatGPT is, it's an AI chatbot, and it does all kinds of research, and it can spit out all kinds of things, pretty much anything for you. It's super incredible and super frightening all at the same time, okay? And so I went on ChatGPT, and I asked the artificial intelligence, how can I transform my life? And I want you to hear what it popped out, Okay. This is what it says. To transform your life, you need to be willing to make significant changes and take bold steps towards your goals. Here are some steps that can help you transform your life. And here's six of them that it popped out for me. Identify what it is that you want. Set ambitious goals for you to do. Develop a plan for you to achieve those goals. Take massive action. Stay committed Keeping, you know, keep reminding yourself of what you want. And then the last one was seek support from those around you. Find people who will cheer you on in accomplishing your goals in transforming your life. And then it says this. Remember, transforming your life is a journey that requires persistence, courage, and determination. But with your dedication and effort, you can achieve the transformation that you desire. So there you have it, Tra- transformation from artificial intelligence, chat GPT. And this is what our culture is looking at. Again, if you're just hearing this for the first time, do some research on chat GPT. It's frightening, but really intriguing all at the same time. But when we look at the Bible, because we're followers of Jesus, the Bible gives us a completely different vision for transformation. And that's what we're going to see here in chapter 3. But before we dive into our passage, we have to understand that Paul is doing a couple of different things here. First, he's defending, he's still defending his apostolic ministry, 
Remember that the, the, the believers in Corinth were questioning him. They were questioning his authority. They, they considered him as fickle or wishy-washy. They didn't think that he was super impressive as an orator as they um, were accustomed to. And the second thing, though, that he's going to do and that we're going to see is that he's going to move towards this idea, this vision, I should say, of transformation. And so look at with me, verse 1. We're going to look at the first three verses. Paul once again says, are we beginning to commend ourselves again? Or do we need, as some, letters of commendation to you or from you? You are our letter written in our hearts, known and read by all men, being manifested that you are a letter of Christ, cared for by us, written not with ink, but with the spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. So as Paul here is defending his ministry to the the believers in Corinth, he asked them this question, do I really need this letter of commendation? Again, they're, they're questioning his authority so much that it forced Paul to be like, do you really want me to give you a reference letter? That's kind of where they were at with him. The Corinthians wanted some sort of reference letter uh, to, to just verify Paul's legitimacy. And then he says something really interesting here in verse 2. He says, you are our letter. He's saying, guys, like I've planted your church. Like, I have told you personally about Jesus. I'm the one who's been praying for you. I've I've been the one raising you up as your spiritual father. Like, you, Corinth, you who were once, just like a few years ago, like, stuck in your sins, in the bondage of this world. Like, you, Corinth, are the fruit of my ministry. And he's now saying, like, you're questioning me now? So he's defending his ministry. And then he, he says in verse 4, he says, Such confidence, such, I have such confidence we have through Christ toward God. Not that we are adequate in and of ourselves to consider anything as coming from ourselves, but our adequacy, he says, is from God. So he says we have confidence. Like there is a humble confidence, but it, Paul's like it's not because of us. No way. Paul's saying we are completely inadequate in ourselves. But we've got God. And he says God alone is adequate. And because he acknowledges the adequacy of God, he's then free to acknowledge his own inadequacies. Let me say that again. Because he acknowledges, he starts with acknowledging the the adequacy of God, he's free to acknowledge his own inadequacies. I think it was like, I think it's... um, Pastor Chuck Smith, who said that God doesn't call the qualified, but he qualifies the called. And what that means is that God desires to use each and every one of us, right? And not because we're so impressive, not because we're so amazing, but God desires, church, to work in your life and through your life, not because you add so much value to his team, but because he alone is able to take a broken and weak, inadequate vessel and display his power through it. Amen? God alone is able. God alone is adequate. And so as we talk about, and as Paul tra- kind of transitions to talking about how can we, here in 2023, transform our lives, right? And that's kind of a, a 
horrible way of, of, of wording it. How can we be transformed, right? Number one, if you're taking notes, we have to acknowledge our inadequacy. We have to acknowledge our inadequacy. This morning, let me ask you, are you willing to acknowledge that in and of yourself, you're inadequate? You cannot bring the change that you so desire in your life. You cannot bring the change that you so desire for someone else's life, but only God can. And I have to tell you, like I am super confused by the logic of self-help. Because if you're experiencing, let me just say, a problem in your life, and that comes from what maybe you've done, why would you think that you're the solution to your problem? Like if your car breaks down, right? Your car breaks down, you take it to the mechanic, right? If you're sick, right, you don't go to the grocery store. Like you go to the doctor, right? If your soul this morning is troubled, why would you look to yourself as the solution? Listen, we don't need self-help. We have to acknowledge self-inadequacy. And as we admit our inadequacy, church, we begin to experience God's adequacy in our lives. Look at verse 6. At the end of verse 5, he says, But our adequacy is from God, who also made us adequate as servants of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. So here Paul brings up this new covenant. Now that raises a question for us. If there's a new covenant, then is there an old covenant? What about the old covenant, right? What's the difference between the old covenant and the new covenant? And in the verses 7 through 11, Paul is going to be contrasting the old covenant and the new. But before we walk through those verses, I want to give us some background. What is a covenant? What is a covenant? This is important. A covenant is essentially a binding agreement that makes two parties one. So that's how we use uh, the word in the context of a covenant marriage, right? Where two become one. It's how the word is used in the Old Testament when two nations make this covenant, this binding agreement, when they would be united as one. And a covenant in the Old Testament would usually come with commitments and stipulations, verbal or written commitments, Again, like, kind of like the vows of a covenant marriage. And so when we come to a covenant in the Old Testament, you see that God makes a covenant with his people. And the old covenant that he's referring to in these verses is a covenant that God made with Israel at Mount Sinai. If you remember through Moses that God, uh, God's people were in slavery in Egypt for 400 years, right? They cried out to God. God miraculously delivers them. He defeats the Egyptians on their behalf. He brings them out on their way to the promised land, and they make this pit stop at Mount Sinai, right? And God meets with Moses. Moses goes up to the top of the mountain, and God makes this covenant with his people. And he gives them the Ten Commandments. And, and God himself writ, wrote the Ten Commandments on stone with his finger. And the Ten Commandments are the written stipulations that come with a covenant. God is binding himself to the people. And he's saying, this is how you are to live in light of this covenant. Not this is, here are, here's all the rules that you need to do. No, God had just freed his people from slavery. And the Ten Commandments are him saying, listen, Israel, this is how free people live in light of these things. 
This is how free people live who are in covenant with God. And so when Moses gets the Ten Commandments from the Lord, he sends them out Sinai, the Israelites, they're camped at the bottom of the mountain, right? So Moses is up meeting with the Lord. God gives him them, gives him the Ten Commandments. Moses is now coming down. And you can just imagine Moses had just been with the Lord. God's making his, this covenant with his people. And Moses kind of gets to maybe the middle towards the bottom. And he's singing. Like, this is amazing. Like, oh, great. Like, people are worshiping. People are just going to be so delighted when I get back with just this covenant. But no. All the while when Moses was up in the mountain meeting with the Lord, the people got impatient. And the people turned to Aaron, and Aaron was Moses' right-hand man, the priest. And they say, wait, wait, Aaron, where's Moses, right? Moses, is he even coming back? Like, he's been up in the mountain for weeks. Like, what, what, we don't even know what he's doing. And they're pleading with Aaron. And they say to him, Aaron, like, would you make us some gods? Like, we need some gods to worship. And Aaron says, all right, like, everybody take off your earrings, Right? Give me your gold and give me all your gold earrings. And they pile them together and they, they melted them all down. And, and we're told that Aaron takes his little tool and fashions a golden calf. And they begin to worship this golden calf. And then so Moses, he's coming down from the mountain, right? And he's, he's just met with the Lord and he's hearing singing and, and, he's, and he's watching dancing. And then he recognizes, oh my goodness, what have they done? They're worshiping. What is that? And Moses comes down and he says to this, Aaron! <laughs> like he's furious. Like what is this? And he takes the stone tablets and he just, he smashes them to the ground. And he takes and he shatters the golden calf. We're told that it, he grinds it to powder and he puts it in the water. And he makes the people drink it. Like, like calm down. Like whoa. Like this is hard. <laughs> Could you imagine they're like drinking this water? Like, wow, you're going to learn your lesson. And Moses looks at Aaron. He's like, what up, bro? Like, come on. Like, what happened? Like, I went up to go meet with the Lord, and I come back, and you're worshiping a golden calf? And Aaron, I, I imagine Aaron, it's kind of like when, like, your parents get home. You're, like, caught. Like, you're like oh, well, you know, you're kind of like, how can I back out of this thing? Like, I don't know what happened, Moses. Like, all the people just kind of brought their earrings, and poof, like, a golden calf came. Right? Like his engraving tools probably like sitting next to him, like over here. Like, like, dude, you're caught. And so Aaron lies about this. God looks down. God's angry. He's angry with the, what the people have done. And God brings judgment on his people. But he also reaffirms his promise to bring them into the land that he had promised them. But then Moses goes on to say to the Lord, and says, God, if we're going to go, like we need your presence. Like, if we're going to do this, like, we need you with us. Like, what, what's going to separate, like, us from all of the other nations other than the presence of the Lord? Like, we need you. And then Moses makes an audacious request of God in Exodus 33. Moses says, please show me your glory. God, reveal yourself to me. God, I want to see you. Show me your glory. And God tells, says to Moses, like, you cannot see my face. Like, it would be too much for you to bear. But I'm going to put you in the cleft of the rock, and then I'm going to pass by. And so Moses, he goes back to the top of the mountain. He goes back up, and the Lord puts Moses there in the cleft of the rock. And he says that the glory of the Lord passes by Moses. And the, the Lord declares this in Exodus 34, 6. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. And Moses, having just seen the glory of, the God, of God, begins to worship. 
falls on his face, and Moses spends 40 days on top of Mount Sinai with the Lord. He's seen the glory of God. God gives him like a second, kind of a backup version of the Ten Commandments again. And then Moses comes down, and he comes down this time because he's seen, and he's seen the glory of the Lord. And his, now his face is shining. His face is radiating. It's f- reflecting the glory that he's seen. And the people are like, whoa, whoa, whoa. They're like afraid. Like it's too much for them. And so Moses, he puts a, a veil over his face. And so whenever he goes in and meets with the Lord, he uncovers right his face. He removes the veil. And when he comes back, he puts the veil back on. And so that story from Exodus is the story of the old covenant. God is saying, this, this is how free people are to live. But then they fail, and they fail, and they fail. And you read through the Old Testament, and over and over and over again, the nation of Israel, they fail to uphold their end of the covenant. And so in 2 Corinthians 3, Paul is talking about the Old Covenant, and he's comparing it to this New Covenant. And so with that, verses 7 through 11, and I want you to notice that in these verses, there are three ifs in verse 7, 9, and 11. And every time that he uses that word if, it's, he's always using like a greater to lesser contrast, okay? It's kind of like saying like, oh, you think like Starbucks coffee's good? Like how about Sister's Coffee, right? Or Cova or, you know, Stumptown or something like that. So he's like, hey, if you guys think that the old covenant is good, just wait until you hear about the new. Look at verse 7 through 8. But if the ministry of death in letters engraved on stones came with glory... So that the sons of Israel could not look intently at the face of Moses because of the glory of his face, fading as it was. How will the ministry of the Spirit fail to be even more with glory? What Paul is is doing here is he's contrasting what he calls the ministry of death through the law with the ministry of life through the Spirit. And when he's talking about the letters engraved on stones, again he's talking about the Ten Commandments representing the, the whole law of the Old Testament. And so, but it raises this question for us. Why would he refer to the old covenant and the law as a ministry of death? Why would he, why would he refer to it <clears throat> as a ministry of death? It's not that, let me say this, it's not that the law itself brings death, but that it leads to death for two reasons, and we're going to look at them really quickly. How does the law bring death? Number one, the law reveals sin. The law reveals sin, and secondly, the law is powerless to change hearts. If you read through the Ten Commandments, like, all of a sudden you realize, like, oh, man, like, I didn't realize, like, I wasn't, I'm not supposed to envy? (laughs) Like, like, oh, man, like, my whole life's been out envy. Like, oh, I'm not supposed to have idols, right? Like, oh, like, again, the, the Ten Commandments, we read those things, and it reveals the sin. It exposes the sin in our lives. But the second reason it leads to death is because it, it, not only does it expose the sin, but it's powerless to change our hearts. The law is a fault finder, not a heart changer. And so what that means is that when he says that the law leads to death and, a, and being a ministry of death, so the law is not bad. I want you to know that the law is not bad. The law is actually perfect, but it exposes what is bad in our hearts and in our lives, but the law is limited. It does not have the power to change us, and that's why it's called the ministry of death. And so the old covenant is based on the law, and Paul says it leads to death. But, he says, this new covenant brings the spirit that changes our hearts so that we can have life. And so how do we experience transformation? Number one, we have to acknowledge our inadequacy. 
But secondly, we have to allow God to change our hearts. The problem this morning with us is our hearts. And I know that there's a lot of problems that we can pick and choose, and those are symptoms to a greater issue going on in our lives. Jeremiah 17, 9 says, The heart is deceitful above all things. It's desperately sick. Who can understand it? Listen, this morning, church, our hearts are sick. It's not just a surface level issue. It's not just that we have to change our behavior or overcome a particular sin in our lives. No, no, the Bible tells us over and over again that the problem in our lives is internal. It's within us. That's why Proverbs 4 says, keep your heart with all diligence, for from it flows the springs of life. If your heart is healthy, then your life is going to be healthy, right? If your heart is unhealthy, then your life will be unhealthy. So it's all about the condition of the heart. And we all have this sin problem. Jeremiah says our hearts are desperately sick. They're wicked. And listen, a Band-Aid is not going to solve our issues. But the wonderful news this morning is that the new covenant declares that God gives us a new heart. Isn't that wonderful news? And we see this in Ezekiel 36 where the prophet is talking about the new covenant. The Lord says uh, this to his people. He says, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. You see, God says, I'm going to deal with this problem once and for all. I'm going to deal with this problem at its root, and that's the heart. And so God says, I'm going to give you a new heart. The old one is too sick, right? You need a heart transplant. We all need this heart transplant. He says, I'm going to give you a heart of flesh. I'm going to take and remove that heart of stone out of your life. But notice the, the implications of this. He doesn't just say, I'm going to give you a new heart so that you can just continue living your life however you want to live it. No. He says, I'm going to give you a new heart and I'm going to put my spirit within you so that it will cause you to walk in my statutes and to be careful to obey my rules. So the laws of God, the commands of God, they're not bad, but in and of themselves, they do not have the power to change the heart. Listen, only God can change your heart. But God desires to change our hearts in such a way that gives us the desire and the power to live in accordance to his will. In accordance to his will. Look at verses 9 through 10. This is the second if as he contrasts the old and the new. He says, For if the ministry of condemnation has glory, much more does the ministry of righteousness abound in glory. For indeed, what had glory, in this case, has no glory because of the glory that surpasses it. So again, he's, com- he's continuing to, to play this comparison game. He says, the old covenant has a ministry of condemnation. And the new covenant has a ministry of righteousness. So again, the, the law reveals sin. And God's holy response to sin is judgment. That you and I stand guilty. We stand condemned in our sin before a holy and just God. And if you remember in the Old Testament, in the, in the Old Covenant, that God gives that sacrificial system, right? So that God's people might come before his presence. But listen, it was still limited. 
because it had no power to fully atone for their sins. It didn't fully deal with the problem. And so the old covenant points us forward to the new covenant, which is not a ministry of condemnation, but he says a ministry of righteousness. This is a new and better covenant. And this happens ultimately through the cross of Jesus. Because what we see is that Jesus, he had no sin of his own and he bore our condemnation. He bore our sin so that we can be made righteous. Amen? Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, For our sake, he, God, made him, Jesus, who knew no sin, so that, we, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. We are guilty. The verdict over our lives is that we are guilty before a holy God. But Jesus bears our guilt and our condemnation so that by his grace we could be righteous. Amen? Through, not by our works, but by simply trusting in who God is and what he has done for us in Christ. And so that when God looks at us, he doesn't look at us with condemnation, but he sees the righteousness of Jesus in us. That's why Paul says in Romans 8.1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That's a fulfillment of this new covenant. Look at verse 11 where we see the third if and final contrast. He says, for if that which fades away was with glory, much more that which remains is in glory. So Paul is comparing the fading glory of the old covenant with the permanent glory of the new covenant. Again, the old covenant was good, but it was temporary. It was limited. It was always meant to point forward to Jesus. Galatians 3.24, Paul says, Therefore the law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ so that we may be justified by faith. And this was God's plan from the beginning. This promise of a, of a new covenant. Jeremiah 31 says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, uh, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. So God compares, again, that covenant uh, relationship with his people to a marriage. And he says, man, I was like a, a husband to Israel. I bound myself to them and they broke the covenant. He says in verse 33, for this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother saying, know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. And so God makes this promise of a new covenant, a new type of this binding agreement that is solely, this is the most amazing part, that is solely based on his grace. Has nothing to do with us. It's a covenant that doesn't deal with the external, but only the internal. And he says, I will put my law within you. He says, I will not write it like on stone, but on your hearts. I will forgive your sin and give you a new heart. And listen, Jesus is the fulfillment of this new covenant. Jesus says, and this morning we're going to receive communion. 
And I just think about when Jesus, you know, gathered his disciples on the night that he was going to be crucified. He took the bread, he took the cup, and he says, this blood, this cup, like represents like the blood of the new covenant. You see, a covenant would, would ultimately be sealed by sacrifice. It was a ritual of sealing a covenant. And Jesus is saying that he is the sacrificial lamb whose blood seals this new covenant, this eternal covenant, where God binds himself with us by grace, where we're forgiven, where we've been given a new heart to live for him. And listen, the call for some of us today, maybe all of us, is to let God change your heart. Let God change your heart. That is what's going to lead to transformation in your life. You're trying, maybe you're trying it on your own. Listen, you can keep trying and trying and trying, but it will not work. Maybe you're trying to overcome the, you know, just the sin cycle that you've been in and you're trying to put band-aids on cancer. Listen, you need a new heart. And God is offering a new heart to you today by his grace. That's good news. Look at verse 12. Therefore, having such a hope, we use great boldness in our speech and are not like Moses, who used to put a veil over his face so that the sons of Israel would not look intently at the end of what was fading, but their minds were hardened. For until this day, at the reading of the Old Covenant, the same veil remains unlifted because it is removed in Christ. But to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their heart. Paul's talking about how this was true with Moses that the glory was veiled because he would put that veil over his face. But then he says in verse 16, even to this day, he says, when they read the Old Covenant, when they read Moses, when they read the books of the law, and the, Old, the Old Testament, Paul says, when they read it, they don't see glory. They don't understand it. Why? Because they don't see it through Christ. And so he says in verse 16, but whenever a person turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Now, when Paul refers in 1 and 2 Corinthians always to the Lord, he's always referring to the Lord Jesus. So as he's saying, there is a veil that's covering their hearts and, and their eyes. But then he says in verse 16, but, but whenever a person turns to the Lord Jesus, that veil is taken away. In other words, Jesus reveals the glory of God. Jesus reveals. That's, that's why they don't understand it when they look back at the law in the Old Testament because they're not seeing it through the light that radiates through the Son of God. And so Paul goes on in verse 17. He says, now the, the Lord is spirit. And where the spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. And again, we remember the context of the Exodus. God had just freed his people from slavery in Egypt. He, he just given them liberty and they were called to walk in that liberty to walk in that freedom. But he says here, wherever the spirit of the Lord is, there's liberty, there's freedom. And church, I'm gonna tell you this morning that the spirit of the Lord is in this place, right? He's here with us. And that means that freedom, liberty is available. That's good news. Like freedom from your past is available this morning. Freedom from sin, freedom from oppression, freedom from guilt, freedom from shame. The Bible says that the, who the Son sets free is free indeed, amen? And where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. I love that. Thank you, Lord, for that. It's not limited, but where the Spirit of the Lord is. He goes on in verse 18, But we all, with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, 
We're being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as from the Lord, the Spirit. So how do we experience this transformation in our lives? We acknowledge our inadequacy. We allow God to change our hearts or give us a new heart. But the last one I want to see is that we behold the glory of Jesus. We behold the glory of Jesus. And so we, we talk about this idea of, of being transformed. Not just embracing weakness, but being transformed. Allowing God to change us into the image of Jesus. You might be here this morning and you're like, is that really possible? Is this guy just talking, talking, talking? Like, is it possible for my life, no, not their life, my life to be changed? Can I truly be transformed? That might be what you're asking. Listen, I want you to see Paul uses three verbs here in verses 16 through 18 in describing how this is possible. He says in verse 16, I want you to note, he says, turn to the Lord. Turn to the Lord. Turn from your sin. Turn from your idols in your life. Turn from your past. Turn from whatever you're beholding. And we all are beholding something this morning. We all hold something up in our lives that's supreme. Many of you, you might be here, you might be holding your career success as supreme, right? That's what you're looking to. Some of us look to the American dream, and that's what we've been banking on for the quality of our lives. But Paul says, turn from it all, whatever it is. Turn and, and start looking at Jesus. Turn from it. So he calls us to turn, and then in verse 18, he says, behold the glory of Jesus. Now, this, this word behold means to look at something, but it means so much more than just look at it. It means to fixate on it, to fix your eyes upon it, to observe with care, to sustain your gaze. Why? Because you're in awe of something. You know, throughout the day, we, we see a lot of things, right? But there's only a few things throughout the day that make us go like this, right? Sometimes it's always a rainbow, right? We're driving in the car. It's always like... Like, rainbows just get me every time. Like, I'm just, I don't know why. I've, I've seen many rainbows in my life, but rainbows just have this w cause in my life to be like, wow, like, that is just amazing, right? There's only a few things throughout the day that cause us because, of, because that we're in awe. And for some of you, God has caught your eye. And from time to time, you might look, but the call this morning isn't to, just to glimpse at Jesus from time to time. No, the call for you is to behold the glory of Jesus, to fix your eyes upon Jesus, to see his beauty, to see his wonder, to see his awe. And the reality is that we become what we behold. We become what we behold. Whatever you fix your eyes on, whatever you uphold as supreme and, and grand, you start becoming like that. Whether it's sports in your life, man, when I, I, I'm a huge sports fan. Like growing up, I've just followed baseball, basketball, and football. Those are the only three sports in, in life, right? And uh, all the other ones are just secondary, right? <clears throat> and so much of my life was just always watching sports and learning sports. And guess what, man? I knew rosters. I knew stats. And then, like my whole identity in my room growing up was like, you know, posters everywhere of all my favorite players and all of those things. You become like, right? And I, like I'd, I'd be playing baseball and I'd have like, uh, who, who was like Barry Bonds or like Ken Griffey? You know, like I had their stance like perfect. Or um, later in life, it was like Ichiro, right? If you ever, any Mariner fans, like he would always do this. And so like you become what you behold, right? And the call today is not just to turn from your sin, though that's, that's the call, but it's to turn from your sin and turn to Jesus, to behold Jesus. And then again, he says in verse 15 or 18, he says, be transformed. 
Listen, God is the one who does the work of transformation. Like we don't transform ourselves, God does it. We just open ourselves up to him. We trust him, we receive his grace, we behold his glory, but he alone is the one who does this work in us. And Paul says that he transforms us from glory to glory. That means that transformation doesn't just happen instantaneous, right? And I know that's what we want. That's what I want. I'm impatient, right? I'm like, God, just make me perfect already. Like, we want to just have this experience with God where we don't struggle anymore. Do you guys relate to that? Like, we just want to have this experience. We want to come to church on a Sunday where we're just like, oh, we get the gooseies and all of these things. And we're like, okay, I'm not going to be weak anymore. Like, I don't, I'm not going to be tempted anymore. But God, listen, wants to transform us, Paul says, as we behold his glory from glory to glory. And the work of transformation is a continual day-by-day process as we depend on his grace. This is a long process. This is a, a slow process. It takes time. But Lord willing, this is, this, is, this is the hope, is that we can look back on our lives. And we can look back and say, as followers of Jesus, hey, I'm not who I once was. But we should also say right now in the same breath, I'm not who I'm fully going to be, who Jesus wants me to be. You know, I I think about my life and when I was in my late teens, early 20s, um, man, I thought, young Ryan thought he knew everything. (laughs) Right? And I just carried that into just every sphere of life. And so um, whether it was ministry or just life, I just, I had this kind of this, this humble, like, pride, this humble, like, arrogance. And I say humble lightly. Like, I didn't, I tried, not, I tried to mask it with, like, not being boastful, right? But I just always had this, this part of me. And I rubbed people the wrong way. And I hurt a lot of people when I was in my early 20s. Um, but I can look back at that. And sometimes I look back with, like, guilt and shame and all of those things. But I look back and I'm so grateful that I'm not that same person anymore. Like, I'm still, like, a work in progress. Like, I'm not perfect, and I'm, I'm still weak and broken and sinful. But I also know that I still have a far way to go in my walk with Jesus. But this is what we should all want to say and desire to say. I'm not who I was, and I'm not who I'm going to be. But by his grace, he is changing me from one glory to the next. And it's his work from beginning to end. Hebrews 12:2, the author says, fixing our eyes on Jesus the author and the perfecter of our faith. Think of Paul when he writes right to the Philippians. He says, he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It's his work. He began this work in your life. He will be faithful to complete it in you. And our job is just to respond with open hands and say, God, here I am. Mold me. You're the potter. We're the clay. But it's your work in us. You're the potter. In, the, in this final verse, Paul says that it's all the work of the Holy Spirit. The NIV reads it like this, 2 Corinthians 3.18, And we all, who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory, are being transformed into his image with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Listen, church, Paul here is solidifying the fact that this work of transformation in our lives is not a work that we do for ourselves. This work of sanctification is a work that God is doing by his spirit in us. And so my prayer for all of us is that we would trust Jesus now and every moment of our lives as we as we move forward that we might experience this ongoing 
inward transformation that plays out in every aspect of our lives. So let me ask you, do you want to be transformed by Jesus? Do you want to be transformed by Jesus? Well, here's the three-step plan. No, (laughs) this is what Paul says. (laughs) You have to acknowledge your inadequacy. You don't have the power to change your life. You are going, if you try and try and try, you're going to get exhausted. And then you're going to get frustrated. That sin is always going to be haunting you. You're inadequate to change your life. But secondly, you have to allow God to change your heart. Allow God to give you a new heart. Your your, your old heart is sick. You need a new heart for him to put within you. And then lastly, we behold the glory of Jesus. We behold Jesus. We remind ourselves on a daily basis of who we are in Christ. That Jesus has done it all for us. That we can rest in his goodness and his faithfulness. In his perfection. We don't have to be perfect, but we rest in his perfection. And by God's grace, by God's grace, by God's grace, we will experience transformation. Not just today. Though I pray tomorrow I'm, I'm a whole lot more like Jesus than today. But every day for the rest of our lives. It's the call of the disciple. Do you guys know that? You know, disciple, it means learner, follower. One person likens discipleship. I'm going kind of rogue and off, off the cuff where you can close your Bibles whenever you want. But someone likens the, the journey of a disciple to long obedience in the same direction. And I like that. This is not just an overnight process where you get saved. You're like, hey, I'm a, I'm a full-fledged disciple. No, the, the journey with Jesus is long obedience. Just keep, keep acknowledging your inadequacy. Keep letting God give you a new heart and keep beholding Jesus. Long obedience in the same direction. Keep walking towards Jesus. He's our only hope. And this morning, again, all of this is made possible by the work that Jesus has done for us on the cross. And we celebrate this morning. You, ha- you were given communion elements. We celebrate this new and better covenant. As Josh and Jessica and Danny come out to lead us in worship, we celebrate that this is a covenant of grace. You know what grace is? Grace is the unmerited favor of God. So no longer is God giving kind of a, a covenant with us, his people, but you know, God has made a covenant with himself saying I am binding myself to them in grace and this morning we celebrate his grace by receiving communion thanks for listening if you're ever in the Portland area we would love to have you visit us for one of our services your service times location or even just to learn more about the ministry of Calvary Southeast you can visit our website at ccseportland.com We hope you've been blessed by this week's teaching. Join us next week as we continue in our study together.